welcome to Your Property Podcast. Today is the 11th of November 2020. My name is Michelle Cairns, your host for today. And with us, we've got Evan Main Donald. So uh, in the last 18 years, his company Melt, M-E-L-T, Melt Property, has built over 100 properties in London, Gloucestershire, Kent, um, with a total end value of over 22 million. The projects they're currently working on have values of over 60 million, and their time and attention has shifted from residential development to mixed use projects and commercial development with a particular focus on hotels, hotels and the serviced accommodation market. So they have also raised over 8 million in equity for their current property development projects, over 2 million of which was crowdfunded. So quite a record there, quite a background. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, yeah. Evan. Thanks, Michelle. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're really only just getting started, I think. <laughs> Yes, you haven't been doing much in your spare time then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, I think my, my business is my spare time. Just, Tell uh, us. <laughs> let's start off with: Have you always been, you know, at this level in terms of? Is it been part of your family? Is you have you kind of been brought up in this, um, in this world, or did you start out in a different career and switched across? It's the latter, actually. So, um, I I didn't start out in a family business. Um, I started Mount Homes from scratch. Um, really because I was interested in property. I actually, um, I was born and grew up in New Zealand. I did a degree in computer science. I worked in the um, technology industry for a number of years. Um, I sold computer systems. I moved to the UK in my mid-20s, um, and I ended up working for BT in a, a role where I was selling international telecoms networks. Um, moved up through that organization. Um, they put me through an MBA program at a Swiss business school called IMD. That was in the late 90s. And um, around, about, around, around about the time the first sort of tech boom around the internet was going on. And I, I must admit at the time I was, I was very torn between finishing my MBA and, um, and just leaving and, and going to work for a tech startup somewhere in Silicon Valley. But I think I've always had a very much, of a, I've always had an entrepreneurial streak inside me. And going through that MBA program actually, I think made me realize, it made me reevaluate what I was good at and the sort of environment that I was best working in and so I came out of the MBA program in 2000 I tried to find a job inside BT which is a pretty big bureaucratic organization um, that it would allow me to exercise those on those skills that I'd learned on the MBA, MBA but also my entrepreneurial side couldn't find one jumped out into a tech startup um, did that for about a year a tech startup near Bristol actually and um I got out of that a year later with a little bit of money, uh, not a huge amount, about a hundred thousand pounds. And I decided that I would do what I'd been thinking about doing for a long time, which is start my own company. Um, and I guess I just really found myself, I found myself at a, a point where I needed to make a decision. Do I jump back into the job market? Do I get back on the career ladder or do I start my own business? And I thought if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. I was in my early thirties at the time. And, um, I started Mount Holmes in 2002, um, just without really a great deal of knowledge about property. I had been buying properties in London, doing them up and reselling them. So I've been doing that in my spare time, but um, I didn't have any experience in development at the time. I didn't have a property background. I just love property and I love design. And I've always had a, a real key interest in property. And, it, and actually, it was sparked by a friend of mine who lives in New Zealand, a chap called Mike Woodward. Um, he started a company doing um, property development in New Zealand, different sort of a thing to, to what I do. But he acted as a, as a bit of an inspiration for me. I thought if he can do that, um, he, he pretty much came straight out of university and started doing property development. Um, I thought if he can do that, why can't I? Um, I invested some money in, in um, some of his projects. Um, while I was working for BT. So I, I had a bit of spare cash kicking around. Um, and I got a bit of an understanding of what he was doing. And I think at, the, at that point, I just thought, okay, right, now it's time for me to do my own thing. It felt a bit like jumping off a cliff um, and, and assembling the aircraft on the way down. But um, yeah, I've, I've never looked back. Um, and I really enjoy what I do. Wow. Okay. So it, am I right in thinking then you had him as inspiration, but also a role model? You could ask him questions about how to get started. And is that how it happened? Like, um, what was your first, what was your yeah. first project? Because, okay, we set up, the, set up the limited company, but then what? 
Yeah. Um, so actually, the first thing I did was to go out and find some projects. Um, and yeah, he definitely acted as an inspiration for me on a, an entrepreneurial level. But um, he was doing property development. He was and still is doing property development in New Zealand. What he does is quite a different sort of a thing to what I do. He didn't he didn't know anything about property development in the UK, and actually neither did I. Neither did I when I started. Um, How did you know what you're so looking for? I think I had a very good financial grounding, um, and okay. so I approached it from a financial analysis point of view. I'd studied accounting at university. Um, I had worked in an environment in BT where I was putting big deals together, um, big international complex deals. And I think one of the things that I've always been quite good at is sticking complicated deals together. Um, but I've also always had quite a good head for financial analysis. So I understood what a PL was, I understood what a balance sheet was, I understood how to analyze something and work out will that make money or not, discounted cash flow, all those sorts of things. And so actually the reality is that there's that there's a uh, a big gap between the theory and the reality. It's only when you actually start to apply these concepts that you really understand them. I wouldn't say that I really properly understood accounting till I started my first business, but I understood the theory. And um, I think that gives you a head start over somebody who doesn't. So I, I had a good grounding in finance and um, the ability to analyze projects and analyze deals. So the first um, project that I bought actually was a... Um, it was a large house with a large shop in front of it, which had a big garden. It was in the center of a, a town called Lydney in Gloucestershire. So I'd, I'd moved out to Gloucestershire. So I'd, I'd been living in London. I was traveling a lot for my for my job and I decided I wanted to move out of London. Looked in the home counties, couldn't find anything that I, I really wanted um, for the price that I could afford. And so I ended up buying a place in the Forest of Dean. It's a, it's a grade two listed um, former hunting lodge with a couple of acres of land and a pool. So, um, and, a lot, and a lot of space situated in the, in the middle of statutory forest. And I'd already bought that when I started Mount Holmes. I used it as a base to work from. Um, and I started doing property development in the Forest of Dean because that's where I was located. But also, I think my ambition had always been to come back to London in the Southeast and do projects here. I just knew that I didn't have enough capital to do projects of a, of a significant enough size. And so I thought, okay, do some projects, learn how it works, and then come back and apply what you've learned in London and the Southeast. It took me a lot longer to get back to, <laughs> to London and the Southeast than I'd actually ever envisaged. Um, that, but that we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later. But this first project, um, I converted the large house into two houses. I converted the shop into two shops. And I got planning consent for... Um, a detached house on the piece of land at the back of the plot and or, or the back of the house and I just sold the lot off so I sold the plot at the back and I sold the individual houses and the individual flats interestingly I didn't make any money on the actual conversion itself where I made my money on that project was the um, the planning consent on the plot um, and so I think one of the things, that the, probably the thing that came home to me most starkly on that project is that, that things always cost more than you think they will, and they're more complicated than, than you think they will, because I had assumed that I would make money on that conversion, and I just didn't. Why do you think you didn't make money on the conversion? Pretty hard to make money on conversions unless you're in a rising market. Um, I just, you've just really got to buy well, and, and it's hard to buy well. I think, I think the problem is that um, when you're competing with owner-occupiers, and this is often the case in the London market. Um, you're competing with owner occupiers who have a lot of money. They don't need to make money on a project. They don't need to make a profit. Um, and so property quite often gets overbid. Um, I think in general, it's very difficult to make money on refurbishment projects. One of the things that that did bring home to me is that, that um, where the money is, is in the planning consent. And so actually, if I look back at that project on the basis that, you know, I, I had sort of broken even or made a little bit of money on the uh, on the conversion, um, but there was significant potential upside in the in the form of the planning consent at the at the rear. It actually, in some ways, fits um, quite closely with the sort of projects that we look for at the moment. We look for projects that have a very limited downside but lots of potential upside. So we make sure that there's a base case where our money is protected. Um, one of the things that I would say if people ask me is. The first rule of property development is never lose money. 
the second rule of property development is never lose money and the third rule is never lose money the point really is um, if you start to erode your capital base then your business becomes unsustainable you have to protect the capital that you have and that is the most important thing um, so we put most of our focus on on looking at the risks and the downsides and making sure that we're in a position where we're not going to end up losing money but at the same time we're thinking about where's the upside in this project where can i find something that you know if we can get it there might be a risk associated with it but if we can get it there's a significant potential upside and if you can get two of two of those things together you've got a really nice one-way bet um, and if you do five of those projects or ten of those projects um, then a certain proportion proportion of them are going to make money and so that's yeah, that's a very good approach to take when looking at property development. Okay, and where did you find this first property? Was it on right move? And if so, were you looking for property with land that you could add value to, or okay. uh, did you just come across it? <laughs> so this is in two thousand and two, and I don't think right move was actually even on, in operation then. Um, so when when I started, it's interesting because we sort of frame these conversations in terms of the way things work today. But back then, you know, there was no there wasn't the same level of activity on social media as there was. It was very difficult to find people who were doing the same sorts of things as you're doing. And it was quite difficult to learn about how to do this stuff. So, um, no, I, I didn't find it on, on right move. I found it through a local agent and, um, I don't think I, I don't think right, right move had even been launched at that point. If it had, it was, it was in a state where, um, it just wasn't very useful because in the, those early days of the internet, um, the portals didn't have much data on them and people were still worried about using email. I remember my solicitor wouldn't use email until probably, um, I don't know, 2007, 2008. Um, I had been using it for a long time because I'd worked for, a tech, for techno in the technology industry. But um, yeah, I think tech has moved along an enormous amount in the time that I've been doing property development. But, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was on the market. I took a look at it. Um, I think one of the other the things that slotted into place for me was an understanding of how development finance worked because I had um, bought and sold a number of properties, buy-to-let properties in London, and I um, had used a broker. <clears throat> and that broker said to me one day, it's just sort of an off-the-cuff comment, did you know about, um, you know, uh, I think he it was a company he mentioned, United, they're actually called United Trust Bank now, but um, they were called Bank and Singer to Beaufort at the time. And he said, do you, do you know how this works? And I said, no, I don't. And he just explained to me, well, look, these guys will do 60% of site value and 100% of costs. Oh, sorry, yeah, 100% of de development costs. And I thought, well, okay, that gives me a framework for finding projects which have relatively low site value, relatively high development cost, and I can actually stretch the, the equity that I have quite a long way by using that sort of leverage. And so um, I, I approached... Um, United Trust Bank, Bank and Singer to Beaufort at the time, to fund that first project that I did. Um, it was quite difficult to persuade them to fund it. They wanted me to, that they, they were concerned, I think, that I didn't have any development experience, probably rightly so in a way. Um, but I managed to convince them to fund it. And I managed to convince them to fund it. And I remember I looked at a number of projects at the time and they were reticent to fund anything that was too big. I think the end values on this, was, they were not huge. It was something like 500K, um, and which was more money at the time, obviously. But I think they were willing to fund it because it was a relatively small project. And they also rel they relied on my professional background, the fact, the fact that I you know, had, had a degree and I'd worked in an environment where I was involved in sticking deals together, maybe not, you know, they weren't property deals, but I managed to convince them that I was I was capable of carrying that project off. And and actually, because it was my first project, I paid an immense amount of attention to it. And it, and it actually did go well. It went about as well as it possibly could have, I think. And so what I did um, following that is um, I was doing a few things in parallel. I'd bought a, a couple of other properties uh, in another town in uh, the Forest of Dean called Cinderford, a couple of quite dilapidated properties. And I started applying for planning consent to extend and convert those. So I bought two adjoining buildings um, uh, and I got consent to demolish one of them, put an access in between the two of them, put four houses on the back, on the land at the back, um, and so I turned this one building from, I think, two or three flats into 
and two, two or three flats in a shop into six flats. The building next door had four flats in it, but they were pretty dilapidated, so we um, ended up getting consent to put a couple of additional flats, one in the basement, one in the loft. So we ended up with, on that development, ultimately with something like 13 flats and four houses. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm skipping over timelines here a little bit because I think I bought that one in 2003, but I didn't actually finish doing all those flats and houses until maybe 2007, 2008. What I did in the meanwhile was um, found another de development site that was on the market, I think because by then I'd started getting a bit of a reputation for doing um, uh, property, for, property stuff locally. Um, I ended up buying, uh, in joint venture with a builder actually, a, um, a plot of land which had a planning consent for 10 uh, detached houses um, in a town called Colford. And the reason that I ended up teaming up with the builder was twofold. Firstly, he put some capital into the project. Um, but secondly, the bank wouldn't lend to me on the larger project um, with, unless I had somebody on board who yeah. had a bit more building experience than I did. So um, I needed him in order to um, to get the bank over the line. Did you know him already? How did yeah, you meet I did. Him? So he's the guy that had done the um, he'd done a lot of work on the place that I lived, the the um, the, the grade two listed um, property that I was living in. So I spent about three hundred thousand pounds refurbishing that and covered the cost of that actually just by remortgaging it. Um, but he had also done the conversion work on the first project that I did, and he 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 was doing bits and pieces of work for me. So I think that. That was a natural um, transition into a, um, a joint venture. One of the things that I did learn, though, um, and again, I, th I think it's something that comes that that you know those early lessons that I learned, I you know I carry with me, <laughs> and um, is that builders don't really understand development. Um, mm -hmm. This guy understood building, but when it came to um, and building isn't the same as development. So there were a number of things that we ran into in that project. It was called um, Lord's Gate in Colford. Um, that he just didn't have any understanding of. And I found that I ended up getting drawn in to and dealing with things that I had no idea would come along because um, I'd never done a development of that size before. And, and although he had built stuff of that size before, he hadn't had to d deal with this, the whole thing from yeah. end to end. Um, and it is quite a different thing. So was he the project manager and the contractor managing the whole site? Yeah, so I guess the way that we set the relationship up is that he was a shareholder in the in the development vehicle, and the principle was that he would carry out the works at cost. Um, again, that's an arrangement that doesn't really work very well. Um, yeah. And 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 the, and the reason for that actually is that he had other work on, and and if he's doing one job at cost and he's got margin on another job, well, it's quite obvious where he's going to focus his attention. Um, he was quite chaotic in terms of his organisation as well. I mean, not. Not on site. He was very good, very well organised in terms of actually getting things done on site. The back end administration was was chaotic. He would just throw piles of invoices at us. We'd have to try and work out what they were. I ended up having to hire somebody else to actually um, make sense of the situation. It was really difficult to keep costs under control. Um, he, we ended up putting a site manager on site that he he recommended that turned out to to, to just also be extremely disorganised. Um, so it, it was good in some ways, but it was very messy and disorganized in others. Yeah. And I think what it taught me is that that um, there's a level of detail in building projects that needs a really high um, level of attention to detail. I think, you know, having come out of the technology industry and run projects in the technology industry, I mean, they're complex, programming is complex, but I think with development, the number of things that you have to think of and take care of is enormous. And so you really need to be extremely well organized. You, have, you need to have good systems and processes in, in place. And I think one of the things that I would say to anyone who's thinking about doing a de development of any significant scale is make sure that the contract that you're working with is really well organized and has good processes and systems in place so that they're actually able to cope with all of the stuff that happens on the development side. Yeah, what sort of things would you, um, if, if somebody was looking to hire a contractor how would they know that they were organized people might say okay i'm organized i've got these systems but how would you check that you could probably have to test them on a smaller job and just see how they how how they work and how they react um you can reveal it reveal a lot by asking questions um i think in 
builders are quite often um, very, I don't know, um, they're very set in their routines, I find. Um, I'm, I'm making a generalization here, but um, you know, these guys, would, they turn up on site at eight o'clock every morning, they leave at four o'clock, and by the next morning, they would, if you had a conversation with them at 3.30, they would have forgotten that conversation by the following morning. Um, they, li they live very much on a day-to-day -day basis. So yeah. I think, you know, with development, you have to, um, and I think contracting and the, the building industry is very much like that um, as a rule. It's very much a hand-to-mouth kind of yeah. industry. So people aren't necessarily thinking about the long term. They're not thinking about what's happening next week. Um, they're, they're really more, you know, they might be concerned about what's, what's happening tomorrow, but that's about it. In development, you need to be looking three months, six months, a year ahead. And, and you need to be planning for that because a number of things that need to happen on the development site need to be thought about months before um, you actually need them to be completed. I mean, a good example is adoptable roads. On the um, development um, on the development we did in Colford, I didn't know that the road would need to be adopted. Um, now, if you, you, have, you have more than five properties on a development, the road has to be adopted. And if, if you don't go through the right process, which we didn't, um, then the council will come along and slap something called an APC notice on you, the county council or the highway authority, um, which is, stands for an advanced payment code notice. Essentially, it's a notice under which you have to deposit a large sum of money with them. Um, so we got landed with one of these, didn't know what to do with it, and realised that actually one of the things that we should have done right at the outset is um, done a road design and got um, agreement with the, the highway authority to get the road adopted. So we had to very quickly get somebody into place to do that, um, get the road design approved, and that slowed us down for quite a, a long period of time while we negotiated with the county, county council over it. Um, that was probably one of the most difficult things that I had ended up having to do with that development um, because we didn't know that it was coming along. Um, and so I think in retrospect, obviously, what we would have planned all of that stuff before we started. Um, well, in retrospect... You're saying obviously you were new to development, the builder knew about the building, but not not necessarily development and managing a project on that level, in terms of yeah. being organised going forward. So, uh, what what would you have done differently? Would you have got somebody else in to sort of manage him and the project on a higher level? Because you mentioned about some of the things that you were drawn into that you didn't expect yeah. to be drawn into. What? It's funny, I, I'm not sure, I, I've never really thought about what I would necessarily do differently on that project. My takeaway from that whole experience was the learning. I just thought I learned so much on that that put me in a position to be able to do much bigger and more interesting things. I never really thought, I never really thought, you know, if I, if I was going to go back and do it again, how would I do it? I mean, in an ideal world, I would have found somebody with development experience rather than building experience. And I did look for somebody to, to, to partner up with and work with. But in those days, it was quite hard to find pe that people with that sort of experience because you didn't have the same sort of social networks and ways to connect with people as you do today. And so um, I couldn't find anybody who really fit the bill and, and was somebody that I felt that I could work with on that basis. I did rely to a large extent, interestingly, on the um, relationship manager that we had at United Trust Bank. Um, guy's passed away sadly now, but he was a very experienced um, development manager. And when he came to site every month to do the drawdowns, he'd talk. I'd talk through things with him, and he would almost coach me. Um, he'd say, "Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Why don't you go off and do this? Why don't you go off and do that?" And I learned a lot from him actually, which was interesting. And I think, you know, relationship managers and banks monitoring QSs who see what happens on development sites um, are a really good source of of you know. Um, information about things that you should be thinking about on, on, a, on a development. But, you know, I mean, in an ideal world, I, I would have found somebody who had known about the stuff that doesn't just involve building, you know, the, the yeah. road adoption side of things, the planning side of things. Um, I was pretty good on the finance side of things. Um, but, um, yeah, there were, there were a few gaps in my knowledge. And it's, I think it's those things that you don't know you're, you're going to have to deal with, the unknown unknowns. <laughs> that you need somebody along your, alongside you to help you with. Because you just don't know they're going to come along, I guess. So going back to what you said before about um, a contractor and checking that they were organised, you mentioned about you were asking some questions. What kind of questions would you ask now or you would suggest that people looking at contractors would ask? Yeah, so I think um, the, the interesting thing about this guy is that he had worked on projects of a similar size 
but he hadn't actually run the project himself. Mm-hmm. You know, so I said, you know, I asked him, have you built 10 houses before? He said, yes. And that's true. He had built 10 yeah. houses on a development, but he'd done it for somebody else. So I think mm-hmm. it's about understanding the context in which somebody has done the work. If I'd asked him the question, and, and he wasn't I mean, he wasn't trying to pull the wool over my eyes or anything like that. Yeah. He was simply being straightforward. Um, but I think if I'd asked him the question, did you run the site, and or, and, and, or if I'd gone into the detail about exactly how the site had been run, that would have pr- probably helped me realise that the, the management of the work was not his. And I think at that time, I didn't really understand the distinction between building and development, um, and they are two different things. To me, they both seem very similar. And I suppose on the basis that I've managed to convince the bank that this guy knew enough to, to get me through the thing, then, um, uh, and, and I suppose ultimately that was correct. We did get through the thing, but in a slightly more disorganised manner than I would have liked. Um, then, uh, you know, I guess I I'd reached the conclusion that it, it would be okay. Um, and actually, interestingly enough, you know, there were a number of things that we le- that I that I learned on that project principles. I, I talked about the, um, you know, the value of planning consent that again, it fed into the, the um, philosophy that we use on developments today. But on that site, we had a, a de- an outline consent for 10 houses. Um, we managed to get much bigger houses than had were originally envisaged by the consent. And we actually also managed to get an additional house. So we ended up with 11 houses. And that had a significant impact on the profitability of the development. And it got, got me started thinking about, actually, you know, we've done this in one place. Can we do it in other places? And, and that fed into the, the approach that we take, take to development now to a great, to a great extent. And for people who are starting out and they see that it's a great strategy and they really, you know, they want to learn and, and get involved with develop developments, obviously you've got social media now that you use to, to connect with people. Um, but how do you, you know, if you had to start again now, what advice would you give to people who are starting out? How would they take that sort of go to that next level, break through that glass ceiling, if you like, where they've got a few properties already, perhaps they've got a little bit of experience, but it almost seems like a bit of a divide between developers and investors or landlords. Mm. How do they how do they bridge that gap? Well, I jumped that I jumped that gap myself. I was an investor, essentially. I did I was refurbing properties. Um I was investing in my friend Mike's company in New Zealand. Um I think it's. I think one of the things that I would say to somebody who wants to get into development is into development is find somebody to partner with, um, and the right person to part, partner with might depend on your position. Um, if you're invest, an investor and you've got a bit of cash that you could put into a project, then you might find that a developer is willing to team up with you um, on that basis. So you bring cash to the project. Um, you bring some skills, whatever your skills are. Um, and he and he or she brings the other skills. Um, I think it's a question of matching yourself with somebody who has complementary skills to, to, to the ones that you do. Um, that was very much the case with the builder that I worked with on this project in the Forest of Dean. He knew how to build, um, and those were skills I didn't have. Okay, there was a gap. We probably should have had a third person who had those skills. Um, I was good with the finance side of things and much better with... with um, well, we, we ended up having to, re- to really catch the ball in terms of administration and management of the site, which um, certainly the latter he was supposed to have done, but didn't do in an, an organized enough way for us to actually um, deliver the thing in the way that we'd envisaged. But I think the point really is that um, recognize, it is about recognizing where your strengths and weaknesses are um, and, and teaming up with somebody who those fit with. So if you have money and somebody else doesn't have money, if you're good at finance but somebody else is good at good at building, that's probably not a bad um, set of skills to match with one another. I think the other thing to say is that these days, you know, with social media, um, you can get a lot of information from um, by putting a post on a Facebook um, forum or um, by um, you know there are lots of forums around how to do property development. You can ask a question, you'll get lots of answers and people will point you in the right direction. So it's much easier to find out how to do things these days. And it's much easier to make the sorts of contacts um, that you might need. Lots of property events, okay, people aren't running physical events at the moment, but, but, but we're still doing virtual events. 
physical events will return at some point soon, I'm sure. So I think what you what what I would recommend is that that you go out and find somebody who has some who um, has a set of skills that, that that you that match yours that have a set of needs that match yours. Um, but also, I think critically is somebody that you get on with, somebody that you feel you can work with. I think that the most critical thing about any business relationship is to be able to get on with the person that you're working with. For me, the most successful business relationships that I've had are with people I actually really genuinely like and get on with. And I feel that there's a, a strong connection with straight away. And that was certainly the case with this builder. Um, he's still a good friend of mine now. And, um, you know, despite the fact that we had a few difficulties on the way through those things and other subsequent projects, um, you know, there's a genuine um, strong relationship there. And I think those kind of relationships are the ones that will carry you through the difficulties that you will inevitably encounter on these things. So you obviously went a lot further on your journey, um, yeah. uh, exponentially grown your, your business. Um, what are the challenges that you faced and how have you overcome them in terms of um, scaling up? So, I mean, I have built this business over a long period of time I've been doing it for almost 20 years now and um, I didn't jump from doing really small things to doing really big things you know I did make some leaps in size so I went from doing this project um, the con conversion and refurbishment projects to doing some bigger refurbishment and conversions and then on to the 10 house development what I've tried to do is sort of just inch up bit by bit rather than trying to take you know huge chunks off at a time um, but, you know, inevitably, whenever you do a project that is bigger than one that you've done previously, you, you, you do end up taking on um, things you've never come across. Mind you, you know, every project that I do, um, I come across something I haven't dealt with before. So I'm learning on every project. I'm still learning now. Um, I think, you know, I think it's easier to learn a smaller number of things. So if you have to learn everything, um, you, you're probably going to get a bit drowned. If... If it's a development site um, and you can see potential for um, increasing the value or enhancement via planning game, what I like to do is make sure that I'm in a position to actually start work on a piece of the site. You know, so if it's a multi-house site, you might be able to do a first phase while you're trying to get planning consent for something in the second phase. So what you don't want to be doing, and I mean, sometimes you're in a situation where it, this does work, but um, in an ideal world, you want to be avoiding situations where you're sitting on a site, you've got the cost of holding the site while you're getting the planning consent, because planning can take a long time and, and there are risks associated with it. And you don't want to be in a position where you're having, having to be forced to do something while you're waiting for the planners to make a decision. It's, um, um, you, you know, you don't have any leverage over them. And, um, it, you know, the, there is a risk that... Um, I think the biggest risk with the planning process is probably delay. If you've got unlimited time, you could probably eventually get what you want, um, but but most people don't. And so um, you will often end up with compromises if you're forced into a position where you've got to do something because you run out, run out of time. So anyway, with this with this um, project in Gloucester Docks, um, interest rates came down pretty substantially um, at around about that time, obviously because of the global financial crisis. Um, we had on that, on that building and actually by, at, at that point we'd also build up a portfolio of, of, a, of about 40 um, 
commercial and residential investment properties, um, most of which we still own today. Um, so we had most of the, the mortgages on those were linked to base rate. Base rate came down, I think, from something like 5% at the time to um, 1% then to half a percent. So we ended up in a position actually where um, we had quite a good income on that rental portfolio. Um, and we had a reasonable income from this building that we'd bought actually. Um, and we had the planning, we had, we got the planning consent, but we could implement, couldn't implement it because nobody would lend on it at the time. And really, um, during that, that period um, from sort of 2008 to maybe 2011 or so, I didn't do a huge amount of development. We did buy a project in London. We bought a, um, a small a commercial premises um, with planning consent for conversion to three flats. Um, it's in Dawes Road in Fulham. So we completed that in 2009. Um, not a great market to be selling into. I think, you know, the, when Lehman Brothers went down, everything got a lot worse. Um, and um, so that was a very difficult time, actually, financially. Um, but we got the project in London completed. Uh, again, pretty much broke even on that. And I think that was really a reflection of the state of the market. Um, and then we managed finally to get development finance to start conversion of the lock warehouse in 2011. So it wasn't really until then that lenders were prepared to lend on development projects outside London. Um, completed that conversion in 2013. And at that point, um, I think that was a really fascinating milestone for me as well because by that point I'd actually owned the lock warehouse for about six or seven years. investment property portfolio. Um, we sort of, I sort of sat back at that point and said, right, um, what do I need to do to build this as a proper company? I just, you know, I, I suppose having completed that project and at that point not really having a lot in the pipeline, um, I started thinking about how to build the company properly um, because at that point it had really just been me or me and a couple of other people and um, I realized that if I really wanted to build a proper property development business, I needed to build a team to help me deliver that. And so I started, um, and I think the other thing that came home to me at that point was that if I wanted to do this properly, um, I needed to raise some, some money. I needed to raise some equity. And so I started thinking about how do I go about raising equity for property development projects and how do I put a proper team in place to help me build this, build this business. for um, five flats, um, ended up tweaking the planning consent, getting some enhancement on that, and um, we ended up with six flats. They were larger flats, they all had outside space, so it increased the end value of the development and we got some increase in the, in the, in the value of the site. Um, and so I think that, that prob probably the third thing alongside the team and looking at how we fund the projects was putting in place a philosophy around the sorts of developments that we're going to do. And I've already talked a little bit about how we approach looking for development sites. We look for sites that work, that will make a profit based on what we can buy them for. They have significant potential for upside. That site in Hyde was a, was a reasonable example of that. So, you know, we had a planning consent. We knew we could implement that and make some money out of it. We got an enhanced planning consent and um, that ended up, we ended up with an enhanced site value and end values. Um, we then bought a site that we're still working on at the moment in um, a place called uh, Tuffley in Gloucester. Um, that's uh, when we originally bought the site, it had a planning consent for 10. It was an outline planning consent. By the way, I really like outline planning consents because they, they give you a lot of flexibility for, for enhancement because the, 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 the nature of the planning is a little vague, uh, which means that if somebody has, has based the value on um, the low end of what can be uh, achieve, which is often the case, then there's a lot of potential for upside, and and that was that, that was something that we recognised for um, uh, was 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 uh, was something that we could achieve on the site. Sorry.
Uh, now, can you just explain for people who uh, aren't sure about the outline planning what the difference is between uh, like the pre -app pre application, the full application, and the out outline planning? Yeah. Um, how much does that cost in comparison to the full app? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so if you've got a planning consent, uh, an outline planning consent, essentially what that does is it says that you can definitely build on that site. Um, but what it does is it sets aside a number of matters, um, it reserves a number of matters to be dealt with later. And so to deal with those, um, to turn that outline consent into a full consent, another one, in other words, one that you can build, you have to submit something called a reserved matters application. And those, that, those reserved matters generally deal with things like how big the houses are, the specific design, you know, is it going to be brick on the outside or will it be some form of cladding, what's the road um, finish going to be. It's about finishes and architecture. Um, but if you've got an outline consent, essentially the, the planning authority has said you can definitely build that many units. You just don't need to know how big they are or what the specific design is. Okay. A pre-app is something a little different. A pre-app is essentially uh, a response from the council that says, that evaluates your proposed application and says, if you submit this application, in principle, you um, this would be our response. But the reality is that you can't rely on pre-apps. They, I think, can draw, the in more complex applications, they can draw out the council's position on certain points, um, but you can never hold the council to a pre-app. And uh, whereas an outline planning consent is something you can rely on. You will definitely be able to get that many units. The issues are really just around the, the, the details. And in general terms, um, you know, I, I, well, certainly with all the outline consents I've dealt with, um, the process of converting them to, to um, full consents has been relatively straightforward. Yeah. Generally, development lenders will lend on outline consents because they know it is just it's just a bit of box ticking, really, um, yeah. to get your your full consent in place. Um, and I think that the, the point about outline consents actually is um, there are a, a relatively cost or low cost way of getting, of establishing the principle that something can be built on a piece of land. So the problem with planning is that there are so many really detailed matters that have to be dealt with. And it, you can get an outline consent without having to deal with all that detail. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the cost in planning applications is actually the reports and surveys that need to be stuck together to put a planning application in. We've got a planning application actually in for a, for a project that we're doing um, in joint venture with a, a private equity fund in Kennington in SW9 at the moment. It's for a 145-bed apart hotel, um, 20,000 square feet of basement space and some office space, plus eight, eight affordable um, residential units. The cost of that planning consent is something like five to 600,000 pounds. The actual planning application fee itself, I think is 30, 39,000 pounds. So all of the rest of that is architects, um, it's engineers, it's daylight and sunlight assessments, it's flood risk assessments, it's M&E assessments. The list of, the list of um, reports and surveys that are needed, um, hotel needs analysis, transport assessment, um, air quality assessment, noise assessment. The bigger the application, the more the list of reports and surveys are. Um, and so coming back to the point, even on a you know an application for say five or ten houses on a piece of land, you are you are going to have a number of reports and surveys. The typical ones would be um, environmental to, to check the contamination on the land. You might have archaeological if there's any suspicion that there could could be any archaeological remains under the, under the site. You'd, you'd almost always have a flood risk assessment. Uh, generally, if you're out in the countryside, even in, in cities, actually you'll, you'll get ecological, so bats and birds and that sort of thing, um, and um, if you're somewhere that's noisy, you'll, you'll generally get some sort of sound insulation or, or noise assessment. Um, so e even on a smallish application, you're going to have maybe six to ten reports and surveys that you're going to get. And an outline application will always be going to spread its costs at points in time, depending on those sort of dealing with the issues that come out of it. I think the other thing is that people buying outline consents often might think it has a different flexibility over the over, over the price of the ground as it has rather than all that property that's being built rather than that being set in advance. So generally, do you buy with outline or do you buy without uh, without any planning behind it outline? Um, it would be unusual for us to buy a site without planning consent set up because that, in our view, would be, un unless, unless we were buying for the value of the site
and so it's a potential for upside that we're looking for. Right. And do you find that um, if people have already got outline planning, sometimes I find is that people have basically creamed off uh, a lot of the profits because they think, okay, uh, now that we've got planning, we've added that value. But a developer comes along and says, well, where's our, where's our profit? <laughs> well, look, I mean, that, you know, I think that's a general comment on the market. People always think the property is worth more than it is. Um, but I think it depends who you're buying from and how you're buying. We assess a lot of development sites, and probably for every 20 sites that we look at, we might end up going forward with one. Um, and that is because most things that are on the market are overpriced. Um, I generally won't look at something if it's only just come to market, because my assumption is that it probably is overpriced. I like things that have been kicking around for quite a long time and that have problems um, because those problems have probably put other people off. If you can find a way to solve those problems, then um, that's where the profit lies. Uh, I think um, it was put very well to me actually by a development lender that I was chatting to a site about. He said, he said um, when we were just talking about the sort of projects that they like to go after, he said, we like things that are a little bit hairy, but, but not more than three days growth. Um, so I think, <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a very vague and subjective way of looking at things. But the point is that, you know, if a site is perfect, then there probably isn't any profit to be made out of it. Somebody's already come along and solved all the problems. The value is in being able to do something that nobody else has been able to do or to be able to deal with and understand the issues and deal with the issues that other people have not been able to cope with and um, or to see opportunity that somebody else hasn't seen. And, and actually... Uh, in terms of that site in, in Tuffley and Gloucester, I think that's why it, it appealed to us because we saw something that I think nobody else had seen. The planning, the outline planning consent envisaged something like 12,500 square feet of development on that site. Um, it had 10 consent for the outline consent was for 10 new built houses and the conversion of a former school into two large semi detached units. The school itself was about 3,500 square feet. So if you work that out, that says that the houses, which are supposed to be a combination of three, four, and five-bed houses, were, would be about 900 square feet each. A 900 square foot house is much bigger than a two or three-bed house. So the impact that it actually has on the gross development value has gone from three and a half million up to more like seven million. So mm -hmm. that's a really good example of a project where the base case
work with that first to try and tune that assessment. Um, but I think the ultimate thing is to go to market and get a quote. So, you know, the best source of information about building costs is is um, is to get somebody to quote on them if you can. Um, so, I think in very general terms, that's the process we go through. But we don't we don't try and do detailed costings right at the outset. We just we do we do them broad brush and then we refine them as we go. Mm -hmm. And if we find something that um, we weren't aware of at the outset or the costs inflate significantly, we might change our minds about whether we, we actually want to go forward with the project. Yeah, no, that's really interesting because obviously you need the broad brush strokes just, just to uh, just to gauge whether there's, it's worth looking into any further. And I think yeah. just that's my uh, feel for when I speak to people where they get stuck is working out those costs. Obviously you've got the fixed costs that you know are always going to be the same or you can work them out through planning or the architect or the finance fees but then the unknowns of well how much is this going to cost you know you, you can have an idea of the NGDV but then in order to work out what profits left over it's that missing box that's uh... yeah well I think if people are struggling with that a really good tip is to watch what a QS does and just and, so and actually just say so, sorry a quantity <laughs> surveyor, a quantity <laughs> surveyor sorry. Know, yeah. and, and um you know a quantity surveyor is effectively like an accountant for building projects you could say um they are very good at analyzing um they, an they analyze costs on building projects essentially and and quantity surveyors come in, in sort of two forms they'll either work for you as as a client and putting costings together and helping you negotiate with the contractor um or they might work for a bank monitoring the project for the bank. So every month you will ask the bank for some money saying we've done this amount of work and therefore we want to draw this down and your contractor will make a request for a drawdown on that basis. The bank's monitoring QS will come along, he'll assess the drawdown or he or she will address the drawdown and, and assess it and say, yeah, is that, has that amount of work actually been done? Um, so the, the point about quantity surveyors is that they're, they're looking at different building projects all the time. And so they um, not only are they trained to, to put costings together in that way, but actually they, um, if they're experienced, then they have a really good idea of the sorts of things that will come up and what needs to be done. So I, I would say if you're starting out working with a quantity surveyor is, is a very good thing, to, very good thing to do. Um, how do we get onto that? That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, lots of great tips. I think it's really useful for yeah. people um, who, you know, are looking to, um, take it to the next level. They might see a development site. They they recognise the value and the potential in it, um, but they're not sure how to kind of move to the next. Yeah, step. yeah. No. So we were talking about breaking down the costs, and I was saying, you know, if you if you want to start to understand that, have a have a look at what a quantity surveyor will do. You know, it might be not a bad idea if you're looking at a project to get a QS to to actually do a cost book for for you and see how they stick it together. But in essence, the process they undertake is they just break it into components. I think the problem is if you try and look at a project as a whole, um, you don't know where to start. Yeah. You have to break it into smaller pieces. And so um, you, the, the first place to start is to ask yourself, what are, the, what are the things that will need to be done to get from where I am now to, to the end, to the finished product? And it isn't it isn't rocket science to understand that, for example, you need to demolish a building. If you're starting with a building, you're going to build a new one. You need to demolish the building. What's the cost of the demolition? You're going to need to clear the site and do some excavation. What's the cost of the excavation? You need to put some foundations in. So what? how big will the foundations need to be? You might not know the answer to that question. You'd need to get an engineer to design them, but, you, but a QS would be able to make some assumptions from experience. Um, the cost of building the building, you might be able to apply a per square foot build cost to the cost of building it. Or you could break it down into smaller components, the, the substructure and the foundation, the, the, the floors, the, um, the, the timber frame or, or, the, or the, um, the masonry that will be used to build the thing. So what a QS will, will do is break it down into all of those individual components. He'll apply a rate and a cost. So he'll measure it. So that's where the, the, the name quantity surveyor comes. They survey the quantities of things that are needed and then they apply a cost to each quantity and they and you end up with a price so you know for example with brick laying they'll look at, at the number of bricks the square meterage of bricks that are required in the building they'll look at the cost of the bricks and they'll look at the cost per square meter of laying those bricks and that cost will vary in between different places in, in the country but 
AQS will be able to build all of that up from a set of plans to give you a detailed cost that's broken down into quantities and measures. Right, okay. I think that's a great place for people to start. So thank you for that. I'm conscious of the time. Um, just before we leave, I'd just like your quick thoughts on where do you see the market going now? Are you um, hesitant about investing? Are you on hold until the prices drop? What's your what's your thoughts and feelings mm. as we stand? Okay, well, it could be that I'm an eternal optimist, but I don't think the um, I don't think prices are going to drop. Um, a lot of people thought they were before you know when we went to the first COVID lockdown, and actually the opposite has happened. I think we might see a bit of a cliff edge at the, the end of the current stamp duty holiday, um, but I think in general the market is in a fairly solid place. Um, interest rates are at a historical low. There's a lot of cash floating around. I think we may see a few ups and downs um, in the short term, but my medium-term prognosis of the market would be that we're, we're likely to see, uh, I think, what I would call a recovery in, in, in property prices. I mean, the market started to take off after a bit of a pause at the beginning of this year. It was, you know, activity was stopped by coronavirus, and when lockdown was released, it came back in a in a real frenzy. Um, and so at the moment, you know, we're seeing a lot of market activity. We're getting a lot of interest in the properties that we've got for sale on our development sites. And um, I think the other point about development is if you're doing it right, you don't necessarily need to be too worried about what the market's doing because if you're finding projects which have little potential for downside and lots of potential for upside, then you can cope with some um, fluctuations in the market because you're actually adding a lot of value to what you're doing. Um, so that, that's one thing. But I think also the other thing is that, pro that property development projects have long cycles. You're generally, you know, if you're talking about any sort of new build or, or, um, or significant refurbishment, you're probably going to be in the project for at least a year, if not two or three. And generally that's long enough to actually ride out the cycles and um, be able to plan your exit on the way through. I think the other thing is that while we, when we started doing development, which was mostly residential focused, we're sort of mixed between commercial and residential now. And so on the apart hotel project that we're doing in Kennington, for example, we've got a commercial tenant lined up. Um, that will be a almost certainly be a pre-sale to an investor. And we can pick and choose the time at which we do that during the course of the project. So, you know, our, our exits are more protected than I suppose than they used to be. And, and we do risk what we do that manner but I'm, I'm fairly bullish on, on um, where, where the market's likely to go in the next few years. Oh, that's great to hear. Makes it ends on a positive note. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great. So where can people find out more about yourself? Are you quite active on social media? Um, I'm very active on social media. If you um, if you Google my name, Evan Maindonald, um, I've got my own website. Um, if you Google Melt Property, that's my company, um, you will find um, our website. So we've got Melt, Melt Property is branded with Melt Homes as our brand for residential development. Um, and we're also very active on um, my personal social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, um, and also the company is fairly active on those um, platforms. So, um, yeah, if you, if you Google my name, you'll be able to find me that way. Thank you.